Couch Wisdom. Couch Wisdom. Hey, this is Todd Burns from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, our regular podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. For many young indie music fans making their way through the alternative section of their local record store in the mid-90s, it was the music of Stereolab, and in particular the voice of Letitia Sadier, that provided a pre-internet window into the worlds of French New Wave, German Krautrock, and a sprinkling of Marxist politics. With their Moog-heavy arrangements and enchanting vocals, the band mesmerized a generation. Stereolab is currently on indefinite hiatus, but Letitia has released a few solo albums and doesn't shy away from collaborations with younger artists like Bradford Cox of Deer Hunter and Tyler the Creator. In her 2015 Red Bull Music Academy lecture with Nick Dwyer, Letitia discussed the influence of the Smiths, forming Stereolab, and more. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of Couch Wisdom. Ladies and gentlemen, put your heads together for Leticia Sedia. <laughs> How are you, Leticia? I'm, I'm good, thank you. Nice. Okay, so it uh, must be noted uh, that today's journey to get here to the Academy included a, uh, included a train um, from, from the UK. Uh, yes, among other means of transportation. So once upon a time, France was, was your home um, and not quite Paris. Whereabouts were you born? I was born uh, a stone's throw away from Paris in Vincennes, where they have the horse tracks and the zoo and the castle and things like that. And uh, yes, yeah, so I guess I always knew my place. You know, I'm a suburban. <laughs> so real Parisian to be, that's not Paris. Yeah, I think that... I mean, I always felt there was a lot of that, you know, like you, uh, the Parisians like Intramuros had a mentality that was, sorry, it's very sweeping generalizations, but they do hold some truth. Uh, you know, it was quite bourgeois and bitchy and, you know, that kind of thing. And, and also like if you dare uh, stick your neck out as an artist, you were like taken out and shot immediately. You know, so it was, I, I, I felt Paris... Intramuros was very castrating, and I didn't have a place here, alas. Though I love this city, and I have many friends here. Well, look, I tell you what, we'll, we'll find out more about this this uh, this part of the of the journey uh, very very soon. But I thought it's um, a great idea to kick off with a track. This is uh, something taken off an album called Dots and Loops, which was released, I think, in 1997. Uh, a track called The Flower Called Nowhere. Hey there. At this point in the lecture, they played some music. Unfortunately, due to copyright reasons, we can't play that here. Yeah, I'm bummed too. Anyway, uh, enough from me. Let's go back to Couch Wisdom. Here you go. Stereo Lab, The Flower Called Nowhere, uh, from an album called Dots and Loops. Listen to that right now. What does that take you back to when you hear that particular track? Oh my God, a whole world. I'm transported. Well, it's nice to hear that track. Thank you for playing it. Um, I like it. And uh, it takes me back to uh, a time in Cologne, in Cologne, where we recorded with our friends uh, Jan and Andy from Mouse on Mars. And um, how fun it was recording with those guys in that big studio that was once a, I don't know, like a cognac factory or something with a very, very, very high ceiling and... 
yeah, and you know, it, of course, hearing Mary is, you know, quite emotional. And um, yeah, and this this record, they were not all fun, but um, this one was really quite quite delightful. One thing that we were talking about just before this started, um, which I found very very interesting, is um, you know we've got to say thanks because you, you you delved into the uh, into the uh, the archives um, in preparation for this um, for this talk today and pulled out a whole lot of records from the label, a whole lot of rarities from Stereolab, and we were listening to this stuff before, and and you were saying that you very rarely, if ever revisit and go back and listen to the recorded material from Stereolab. Obviously, when you're on stage, you're re-performing it. But in terms of going back and listening to the music that was recorded, you, you don't do this so often. Why Why is that? Well, uh, I, mean, I mean, Tim and I were a couple for 14 years. And, um, and he, I basically learned, um, he was my musical formation and that was my music school the Tim Gain Music School. And um, so, and he had he fantastic person and everything and fantastic musician and composer. But I think there were some bad habits in there. And one of them was that you you make a record and then you put it somewhere on a shelf and you never listen to it. You're just constantly moving forward, making the next one. Okay, that one's done, next one. And there was never, like, our records were written and recorded very quickly. There was, I mean, of course, all the love and care and attention went into it, but we didn't ponder over these for, for years, like, say, broadcast would or My Bloody Valentine, you know. So it was always, there was no preciousness around making records. They're just, like, churning them. We're just churning them. And uh, like literally on a conveyor belt, um, I know it might sound shocking to some of you perhaps, you know, who might have, I don't know, fantasies of, but like we would have, we would write 35 tracks, sometimes more. And in the studio is like, okay, do all the drums. And then next, do, do all the 35 drums, 35 bass, 35 keyboards, 35 guitar, 35, you know, like turning them literally, you know, in what was uh, what I was decrying per perhaps in my lyrics, you know, which is like this kind of automization of production, you know. So, yeah, it was very automatic. But somehow that's how we did it, you know. And it wasn't a democracy either. It was... Um, we'll find out a bit more about that later on because it's definitely something I want to talk to, uh, talk to you about. But, but now that you've got distance from, you know, there's, there's distance from Stereolab now. It's been, what, seven years since the indefinite hiatus. Are you trying to find some time to, to revisit that music now? Well, I haven't, I haven't Stereolab's music particularly, like, I'm not going to be at home and, and sitting in my kitchen and playing a Stereolab record. I won't do that. But sometimes I'm in a car with someone and they're playing a Stereolab record. I'm like, yeah, we're a good band, huh? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, uh, that's how it's... That's how it's, so, yeah, and even with my own material, I've made six albums, three as Monad and three under my own name. And um, I haven't... I, it's like, I, I don't know why it is, if it's an insecurity or something, like the fear of, oh, it might be shit or something. I, I don't know. I haven't analyzed it, but yeah. 
but I, I do think I'm 47 years old now, and and so maybe coming to a, the autumn of my life, you know, and it is a time to reflect and um, and really, um, I'm sure it would do me a lot of good to sit down and listen to everything and have a lot of pleasure in doing so, you know. So I'm sorry, there, there's talks of uh, re-releasing some the Stereolab vinyl albums that we did with Elektra Records. I think there's seven albums and for contractual reasons, it's pretty messy and complicated at the moment, but we do, we're, we're looking into remastering and repackaging all these albums which aren't available anymore. And, and um, so we're kind of waiting for that thing to be released through the label and, well, that they let go of our material, basically. You know, and that was going to be my moment of like re sitting down, listening, remastering, you know. Re but um, yeah, it's, it's taking Still a while. Yeah. One thing about that track in particular, there's, um, there's been a lot of very notable um, uh, fans of your music who in their own worlds are giants. Um, and in particular, a whole lot of hip hop artists are ones that, that, you know, dig deep into a variety of different musics. For a lot of them, they, they all sing the praises of, of, um, of Stereolab. And in particular, Pharrell has spoken in many interviews about how that song in particular is, is one of his favorites. Uh, and in certain interviews, I think he goes into a bit too much detail <laughs> of, of um, why he enjoys that song in particular. Um, but does it never cease to amaze you where the music that you've created has ended up and where your voice has found itself. You know, you, you create music, you let it go, and then 15 years later or nine years later, it comes back to you in strange and wonderful ways. Yeah, I mean, that's, I guess, um, we're all possibly uh, musicians here and, you know, or artists, and that's one, that's one thing that's certain is that you... A, you don't own it. It's not something you possess. It's not because you create a piece that it's yours. That's I think it's a bit naive to think that because it definitely escapes you. You're just kind of responsible for putting it on earth somehow. And and then beyond that, it's, it's just going to make its way. And I think one has very little control over that. And... Um, you know, and that's a good thing too. I mean, when it comes to to Sterilab, I think it's just music for the music lovers, mm. and uh, and and yes, music lovers are are everywhere. There's not maybe a lot of them on this planet, but um, they will be found in all genres of music, I believe. So, uh, and I think there was always a kind of universal quality to our music. Mm. That um, that it it and like kids like Stereolab somehow you know and uh, you know like Bob Marley or something you know like everybody likes jamming you know so I, th I think there's a bit of there's a bit of that you know in our music and and it does translate. I think in order to talk about Stereolab, we, we need to go back a few steps. Um, we need to talk about a band called McCarthy, but we, we even need to go a, a bit early and, and find, about these, uh, find out about these early days of Leticia Sadia growing up in, in the suburbs of Paris. Uh, when was the first moment you, you really fell in love with music and uh, growing up in Paris? 
Actually, if I may say, it was in my mother's womb. Because, and I heard this over and over again, that when she went to the opera, I would go bananas, you know, probably going, turn it off! <laughs> but apparently I reacted to music even then. And, and I remember, uh, yeah, as a small child, music was like magical. It was... Uh, the world would stop whenever I'd hear um, a song on the radio that I liked. Uh, you know, so it was like, yeah. It, what were these songs that were making you stop? Well, there were two in particular that I, 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 I vividly remember. One was Heart of Glass by Blondie. Uh, that was, you know, I had to stop whatever I was doing and just listen and soak it up, you know. And the other one was uh, Don't Say It by wings i love that song and also back in the sort of late 70s um jean-michel jarre made this um record called Ox oxygen and i remember really digging that also that really i think i loved melodies in particular so yeah I've written a couple of places <clears throat> for you as you, you know, became a angsty or not so angsty teenager, whichever, you know, but some form of a teenager. You know, music was very much a, a refuge for you. Uh, you know, tell us about Leticia in her teenage years and, and the role that music played in your life. Um, yeah, in, indeed, I was very angsty teenager and uh, and my life was a misery and uh, music was my only source of joy, apart from maybe one cat that we had in the house. When I was 11, we lived in America with my family for a while. My dad worked for IBM, so the whole family got exported to Poughkeepsie, upstate New York. And I remember my first dollars, I, had, I went to the record shop and I had to buy records. And I did not know what I was buying I had no idea because in them days, you didn't have the internet where you go and listen to something. Okay, I'm going to buy that. So I just took any record and I bought it. And it was Billy Joel, which I didn't particularly like, but I had to buy a record, you know. So, so yeah, I guess this, this you know, uh, obsession with music and records was kind of, um, was, you know, early onset. And... Um, in 1981, in uh, in France, the the FM wavelength was um, opened up to anyone who wanted to start a radio station. So imagine, you know, the FM wavelength to like you and I, we're going to start a radio and we're going to play our records, you know. So it, you had a fantastic variety of radio stations. And it's the only time in my life where I got to hear so much good music <clears throat> on the radio. It was fantastic. And um, so I remember a radio called Bebop, for instance, and they played only great stuff from out of this world. Mm. And uh, so the first thing I did coming home from school was get to my radio and listen. <laughs> when would you say was the first moment that you... You really connected with music lyrically, like where all of a sudden, you know, these lyrics really were impacting you and, and influencing you. Oh, well, if I dare say, I think the Smiths, <laughs> you know, I know I'm not the only one, but uh, yes, 
there were big. That's where that's where lyrics actually started to mean something. What was it in particular about Morrissey's lyrics, and and what was he what was he saying in particular, be it politically, socially, that resonated with you? Um, well, firstly, it was like, wow, there's someone who's more miserable than me. <laughs> so that felt good. That was like kind of cathartic in itself. Um, and and yes, he was he was you know he he talked about sexuality, which of course is of concern to every human being, but never really expressed you know in honest ways. Um, so, and and of course uh, socially, well, he he was a guy. He, he was a lad from the estate, I think, from the the. So. Uh, there was a not 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 that I lived on the estate, but you know, as a suburban and someone not socially considered as particularly anything good, you know. Then there was also a resonance there, which I think with most people, that's the thing: is that most people are suburbans or you know, like not from the heart of Paris, you know, or from the Queen's family or you know whatever. So yeah, he 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 created some resonance and managed to connect with people in a fantastic way. So um, and and also very eloquently. And I learned so many English words thanks to him, you know. And and I read uh, Oscar Wilde, you know. And I became vegetarian <laughs> and all that. So at this point, um, you know, young Leticia from the from the suburbs, listening to Smith, the Smiths, loving the lyrics of Morrissey. Uh, still quite angsty wanting to start a band yourself um you wanted to start a band but it was it was difficult to start a band in paris in those times right yeah it was i think it would have been a miracle okay i believe in miracles but um i did try and repeatedly and i just found people with big ankles but no no real creative nerve and that was really frustrating yeah, in in the end, it was clear that I would I needed to leave this environment and export myself. In terms of <clears throat> making that journey and, and, and finally leaving that, um, a certain as the history books will will, will, will uh, tell, um, a certain performance from a UK band happened, um, a band called McCarthy. What can you tell us about McCarthy? We're going to listen to a track right now, but but you were a big fan of of this band. Was this? Uh, yeah, did you have posters on the wall? <clears throat> what was what was your relationship to McCarthy before <clears throat> this one fateful night? I discovered McCarthy on the, on one of those radio stations. They were called RTH 99 Rock. Uh, rolls of the tongue, doesn't it? And um yeah, and and I think what uh called me was the the melodies in McCarthy and the beauty of the music. And there was a certain radicality also in the lyrics, which I did not necessarily capture all of it, because a lot of it was ironic. It was very extreme left-wing, but they did have song titles like Anti-American Cretin. So it was like, well, you know, do they mean it? Don't, don't they? So it's very British, basically, where, whereby you say the contrary to what you think. So you have to turn things around to get the, you know... Um, but yes, certainly the music was totally sending me out there. 
And so the show was in Paris. <clears throat> they came to town. Yeah, they came. They came to town. They played. Um, there was this guy called Stéphane Bismuth, and I hope he's still around in Paris. And he invited bands to play, like pop bands, to play the New Morning, which was traditionally a jazz club. So I remember seeing like a double headline bill in a quite a small jazz club, um, like it was. Um, my Bloody Valentine and Happy Mondays, double headline in a jazz club in Paris. Isn't that crazy? Aren't you drooling? <laughs> so, yeah, anyway, so we had also McCarthy came through. So, of course, I bought a ticket and um, also the Wolfhounds. So you had uh, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, you know, and you had the Wolfhounds and McCarthy. Right. And, uh, yeah, and there was lots of great bands coming through which i was you know always there at the front we'll listen to a track right now this is mccarthy uh red sleeping beauty what can you tell us about this track it's beautiful and it's red mccarthy uh red sleeping beauty and what's uh what's interesting about this night we're talking about um it just so happens that you you went you saw the band perform uh you enjoyed the performance and then you you met the band afterwards and if you could Tell us uh, what, yeah, what happened next. You're calling me a groupie? <laughs> <laughs> I never said you're a groupie. Um, a McCarthy enthusiast. There was a, a support band before that went on and on and on and on. And they were awful. And we we're all like dying in there from this bad support act. And, and I remember seeing Tim, he was in the audience. So, and like kind of wandering around with a big spot on his nose. <laughs> and uh, and I just went to speak to him. And I said, hello. You know, and uh, and it was great because they had a day off the day after. And I said, well, I'll be your guide in Paris. And uh, here's my phone number. Because we didn't have mobiles in them days. And uh, and I remember I was like, is he going to ring me? Is he going to ring me? And I waited all day by the phone. And he did ring. And uh, yes, and... And the you rest is history. You're obviously an excellent tour guide. <laughs> exactly. So next thing, <clears throat> you found yourself uh, heading to London. And I don't know what, how long after that, uh, that, that tour was, but you, uh, you, you joined the band, essentially. Yeah, I, I joined the, the last five minutes of <laughs> McCarthy. And they were, when I moved to, um, uh, to London, which was in September 89, um, they were recording and and uh, Tim knew that I wanted to sing and he's like, oh, sing on the record. So um, so I did end up singing a few backing vocals on the record and we did a, one last tour with McCarthy and the Chills from New Zealand and, and then the, the group parted. <clears throat> um, I believe that Tim wanted to have more control over the music and um, he was. He felt it was the right time to start something new. And I think Malcolm was the singer was quite happy also to, to be doing something else. But it was really that at that time where McCarthy were becoming a bit more popular, yeah. and um, because the Smiths were very popular, and um, somehow they could be kind of tied in with that. And um, really, they weren't far from like their first American tour, but it, it didn't. You know, they split before that is it, is it a fair assessment to make that with McCarthy it was almost like 
the politics were the most important thing for them. Secondary was the music. You know, if you enjoyed the music, that was just the cherry on top. But they had a message. Yes, yeah, and I think that's maybe that's what Tim wanted to get away from because Tim's priority was the music, and not the politics. So there, there's probably a point of tension right there, yeah. and um, and and Malcolm was very very dedicated um, uh, politicists, um, if there is such word. Well, he he certainly. Um, wanted to change the world and um, and he felt that politics is the tool that humans have to do so and uh, and it was very logical you know very rational and logical sometimes a bit too rational and logical I think compared to how wonky and warpy reality can be you know you can't just cut everything with a knife you know precisely but for you being around Malcolm, did that uh, and, and the lyrics of McCarthy did that play a large part in in influencing a future Leticia Seria lyric writer? Absolutely, absolutely. Because he he sat me down and he said, "Don't ever talk about your heartaches in a song." <laughs> and somehow he just it was like a threat, you know, like or I'll kill you. <laughs> so um, so I was like, "All right, then better not." And and indeed, for years, I was I just you know, and it's it's true. I never talk about my heartaches. Well, actually, I do now, but don't tell him, okay? <laughs> but for, for so many years, every time you'd go to write a new the lyrics for a new Stereo Lab album, would it be Malcolm appearing on your shoulder saying, "Remember what I told you?" <laughs> exactly, exactly. And and I really got his point, and and I was, you know, also politically motivated and quite an angry youth, really. Can you can you paint us a picture because you know around the the very end of the eighties, nineteen ninety, you know when this, this the Stereo Lab story is is beginning. Um, very interesting political climate in in London. I believe Thatcher was still in power, uh, or, or yeah. What was what were you arriving to from Paris in London? You were already angsty and politically charged, and there were I guess a lot of things to be even more angsty about in in London almost. Yes, uh, I believe the Tories were still in power, and it wasn't Margaret Thatcher. She she'd gone out, but um, it was John Major, I think, or or someone like that. And actually, John Major wasn't too bad when you compare him to Tony Blair. You know, Tony Blair was a worse Tory than than this poor Johnny John guy. You know, so um, but it's true that um, the uh, Great Britain was quite depressed when I arrived, and um, and that's when you had the wave of uh, the shoegazers, which, by the way, wasn't a compliment. If you said to someone you're a shoegazer, you know, it was it was not a nice thing. Now shoegaze is actually a trendy, cool thing that you should you should strive to be. It's like so for me, it's a bit weird, but. Um, uh, so yeah, you had these guys looking at their shoes going with lots of pedals because they can't sing and they can't play and they can't, you know. But, so um, so it was it was kind of and some people say, well, you know, it's Thatcher. She killed the the she killed the nerve, you know, the creative nerve and the edge. And uh, now we just have this kind of amorphous bands, you know, who play amorphous music with no spine. And um, sorry, I'm really exaggerating, but 
you know, just to give you a flavor of, of what I arrived to. Um, still, there were bands like My Bloody Valentine, but they were, I think, they they had had their really exciting moment and and they were moving towards maybe having the pressure to create something extraordinary and it wasn't happening. But really what I arrived to, um, well, what was born, and this was happening with Too Pure, I don't know if you remember this label, I was kind of notorious at some point because they had PJ Harvey, they had Mouse on Mars, they had Stereolab, they had Pram, so they had you know some quite hot stuff you know at once but i remember like um we we went out to gigs practically every day in london which was for me such a such bliss and um there was um so the grunge was going on and you had bands like the faith healers which i don't know if it rings a bell with anyone here but they were quite loose and they were they rocked and you had this girl with long hair who would go like this, and um, and then people in the audience would go like this, and it was extremely fun, you know. And it was about you know, come on, let's do something fun, let's have fun, and let's just loosen up and you know, and not be so serious all the time about everything. And um, they didn't really have any political message as such, but I think the political aspect of what they did was pretty strong because it was kicking everyone up the butt and saying, you know, loosen up, do something, get out there, do your stuff, don't be stuck up, you know, so... And in terms of, of you and Tim getting out there and doing your stuff, what was that, what was that moment where you both sat down and went, hey... Let's start a band. <laughs> well, it it kind of happened very organically, um, whereby um, uh, McCarthy kind of shut down and Tim was writing songs straight away and getting, you know, with a... He would bring them to me in a wheelbarrow. His 50 songs... <laughs> Write lyrics, please, <laughs> and sing them. So, um, yeah, it just, you know, started, it just trickled through. And um, it was quite good because he had um, experience. Basically, they were signed to different, well, I don't know if they are actually signed anything, but they were on September Records and maybe something else, and then Midnight Records. And Midnight Records was very alienating, and um, whereby you couldn't do this, you couldn't do that, and uh, so Tim really wanted freedom of of action. So he was like, "Okay, we're going to start our own label, like that. We won't have to give any accounts to anybody." And um, and so we did start our own label, and we kind of self-financed our first record, which I brought here, a copy. Should we listen to a track of that? Yeah, I think we should, yeah. And this was completely self-made. So know. it was very, very DIY, this whole kind of DIY thing. Exactly. And and that was the point of an indie band, is that you did it yourself. You didn't go to the boss. You didn't go to, um, you know, to the man. In fact, you said, fuck you, to the man. <clears throat> 
your your friend David would well everyone's friend David would do the artwork. Someone would punch the labels. Like every everyone in the in the crew had their role, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. And yeah, these are freezer bags, by the way. <clears throat> what do you mean by freezer bags? But is they're the ones where you can put your meat in and then you put it in the freezer. It was the perfect size. And I remember Tim and I going around um, London to record shops with a shopping trolley. Not the shopping trolley like that, but the one where you do your, your market with. And we had rec- and we go and sell our records to the record shops. And they all took them and there were no returns. And this is actually quite an expensive item now. So how many of these were pressed up originally? Uh, n- not, does, it, does it not say? It's DS, DS is Geophonic Super 4501. I don't know, I'd say maybe a thousand, but right. I'm not sure. So let's have a little listen. So that was essentially the, the first ever Stereo Lab release, uh, The Light That Will. Uh, from this incredible DIY little project that you guys started up? It's the light that will cease to fail. And and I think indeed that was taken from a surrealist book, right. probably from Breton. Okay, so I'm going to stop you right there. So this is this is something that, um, that you know, went on to play a large part in influencing a lot of, of future Stereolab tracks was the surrealist movement and also the situationist movement do you want to do you want to talk a bit about this um you know how you stumbled across these influences in the first place and, and what was it about them that inspired you to put pen to paper um i think tim tim turned me onto the situationist movement um i think he he quite liked the aspect of things that are a bit um, nebulous or not, you know, and it's true, reality is hard to seize and to put in a box, and I think he didn't like that. And um, and probably what was attracting him to a movement such as the Situationist, who some might argue never really existed anyway, it was just like, you know, an appellation, but... And... Um, and, and am, I allowed to, am I allowed to ask for those in this room that might be like, huh? Haven't found, haven't stumbled across that just yet. And in in a very short kind of version, could you explain what the Situationist movement was? Well, I, I don't, I don't know if it was actually like such a movement to speak of, but um, it was built around uh, a guy called um, Guy Debord, who was a uh, uh, very uh, very um, insightful guy in into society. He he was also very um, very bitter, I think. Um, but but who would not be when you look at society and how it's how it's run and you know how it's governed and the forces that you know that govern our lives, like capitalist forces and um, you know and even the architecture and you know so. He was very sensitive to all that and wrote uh, a classic book that's very hard to read called La Société du Spectacle. Which, which, which year did this come out in? 
you and your oh, years. Sorry, sorry. I don't know, we we the, talked it, about this before. The, in the sixties, okay, la, okay. la Société du Spectacle. Do you right. know the sixties? Anyone? Um, so, um, I mean, it's if you read one page already, it's like wow. You know, such such an inc incision into all this bullshit. You know that, and you know it's quite scary actually. Um, you know, how we manipulate history and how, you know, buildings shape us and how we think and, you know, and, and not to mention the media. And, and of course, he, he, he was very perceptive and very good at uh, uh, pulling apart all the forces that, you know, that influences. And, and, and of course, that's very rich. And, and I was really interested in that. And because I... I am an idealist and I think we can we we can improve our you know our the way we live you know and could have we could you know achieve a better fairer society at the, at that point in time when Stereolab was starting out was that a conscious decision on your behalf to use <clears throat> the platform that you'd been given to write about these sorts of things about politics about you know things that were going on in society yes of course to me, there was there was no there was no question about it that this was this was I think art is a real tool a real political tool in the sense that it's your way of acting and way of bringing in ideas and um, in the late seventies and in the eighties there were a lot of political groups it was it was no no big uh, strange thing you know a lot of you know gang of four or um, but even in France, we have Orchestre Rouge or Marc Seberg or, you know, who, who, had, who, had, who were very political or even the fact of being in a band and deciding how you're going to lead your life and being the master of your life is a political act. And, uh, and really, I came from that school of things whereby, you know, this, I'm in charge of my life here and... You know, and and making my music and writing my lyrics, you know, brings meaning to my life, and that that felt absolutely uh, fundamental to what we were doing, and we were doing it as a matter of life, life or death, almost. You know, so, and and I think, and I think some people poo pooed that, you know, <laughs> they just didn't get it. To them, making music was oh entertainment, ha ha ha, you know, for Saturday night. And it's like no, it's it's not a Saturday night thing. This is this is our life, you know, and uh, and it it was very serious. And at the same time, not very serious, you know, because we're just a very small pop band, you know. We didn't take ourselves extremely serious, you know. I mean, I, I want to talk a bit about. Um you know, we started off playing something. This is the first release on the label, Duophonic. Um, but Duophonic was not just a, a record label that was for your own material. You were releasing music by other artists. And I think what's very, very interesting is, is uh, I think, what, about... Nine, uh, sorry, here's me with, going with the dates again. But I, I think around about 90, 1992, you released a compilation called, uh, called Shimmies and Super 8. And uh, I think what a lot of people... Uh, don't realize when we're talking about the history of Daft Punk is uh, that Daft Punk, the story actually began, <laughs> began with you. <laughs> Tell us about a band called Darling and these young, 
these young whippersnappers, these young, excitable kids, Guy and Thomas. Guy, Thomas, uh, Guy Manuel and, and Thomas Bangalter. Yeah, well, they, they were friends of ours. A common friend had given us a tape by these two kids. They were very young. They were 17, uh, 18 maybe. And they were called Darling, Darling with an apostrophe. And um, yeah, and, and we thought, oh, that's a that's a nice track, you know, it's fun fun pop track. And we decided to do a little comp- compilation. So we had Huggy Bear, who were very uh, happening at the time. There were this Riot Girl band. I don't know if you've heard of Riot Girl movement. Okay, the the Riot Girl were like basically a bunch of uh, feminist women who were like, okay. At gigs, we want the girls at the front. <laughs> and uh, they even had like women-only bands, uh, women-only gigs and everything like that. I mean, it might have seemed a little bit silly, but unfortunately there was a need for that because there's still a lot of boys making music and coming to gigs and not a lot of girls. So it was a nice little kick up the yeah. The butt of, you know, and I remember the boys getting very defensive. What's these girls? What do they want? You know, well, they're the right girls and they don't shave their legs. <laughs> and um, no, but the, I mean, they were quite intellectual as well. And, um, you know, and, and they made good points and they had the energy to go, you know, like this. And we needed that. We needed that. So there were, anyway, so you had Huggy Bear who were very exciting band with uh, excited people in it and uh, singing rah, 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 like this. And um, we had Colm, who was a band from Paris, and um, and we had Darlin and us. Well, so it was a uh, four-sided, um, two-seven-inch. This is also quite a rare object. Now worth a lot of a lot of money for uh, for Daft Punk completists, I believe. Yes, possibly. So that's played on forty five, and um, should play Cindy so loud. Yeah, um, I'm just going to put that on here. Let's see how it goes. Daft Punk as Darlin, um, Guy on vocals, Guyman on vocals on the on the first track. And I believe Laurent, the, the mysterious third member of Darling, went on to become part of Phoenix, right? And and as, <clears throat> you know, Daft Punk folklore goes, it was the Melody Maker review of that EP where I think the reviewer was kind of trashing them and he called it Daft Punky Thrash. And then basically a year later they came back as Daft Punk and yeah. Weird to think that that was all in the space of a year or two years, right? Yeah, yeah, it was quite a quick turnaround. (laughs) Did you stay in touch with them as they kind of headed more and more into Daft Punk land? Um, I I spoke to to Thomas a few times, but yeah, I mean, we don't hang out (laughs) these days. But who knows? But hey, you played a played a part in that little uh, that 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 piece of French music history. Yeah, yeah. Somehow, yeah. Uh, I think we'll go to a video right now. Let's let's get back to um, to talking about Stereo Lab. Now, this is a, this is a tra- we're going to watch a video for for French disco, um, and this is from a UK TV show. We'll watch it first, and then maybe you'll be able to tell us what the TV show was. So, this is Stereo Lab. Uh, again, sorry, me with my dates. I believe nineteen ninety three. 
This is French disco. As you recognize it, it's the word. It was on Saturday night, you had this guy. Do you remember his name? Terry. Terry something, no? No, but I remember it was always on very late. Oh, that late? Yeah. I don't remember it being on so late. But um, yeah, so it was a Saturday. It was quite a silly show, actually, where they had like competitions of who would eat the most maggots or something. <laughs> yeah, that kind of stuff. And then performances by Styrian. <laughs> <laughs> yes, actually, he, he, this, the, the presenter, whose name I forget, um, he saw us at the Whiskey A Go Go, as he said, uh, in his Mancunian accent. And when we played in LA, And uh, he was supposed to go and see some other band and he had he was not on the guest list. So he ended up getting a ticket to see us who were playing down the road. And he loved us and he invited us to play on his show. And I think that's the only, one of the only two times we ever appeared on British television, right. yeah, live. But it must be noted that <clears throat> the British music media definitely embraced Stereolab. And a lot of the magazines wrote very fondly. A lot of uh, a lot of the music journalists that, you know, like to show off their deep knowledge themselves of, you know, all these, uh, like, music genres like Krautrock and Bossa Nova could, could flex, you know, I, I, I get those references, blah, blah, blah. So there's a lot of British press that were loving to write about you guys as opposed to the French media, which they really didn't treat Stereolab that good at all, right? Why? What, what was the relationship between Stereolab and the, and the French music press? Well, I would describe it as disastrous, really. There was one magazine in particular called Les Inrocuptibles, not to mention them, who just systematically shut in our backs for 17 years. Wow. And they just, uh, and they would really, really lay, you know, really lay it on thick, you know. For, for what reasons? I, well, I don't know. I mean, my explanation is that uh, probably some misogyny. Um, I couldn't help but take it a bit personal, unfortunately for me. I think also there was, like, Les Inrocs, there used to be a very good magazine in the 80s where it was one question a good question and an answer, you know, answer, question, answer. And uh, it was a very, they would re rewrite uh, the speaking of whoever they were interviewing and they had a really good plume, they were, they were very good writers, I give them that. And, um, and it was a very popular magazine because you could actually learn something about and have real insights about music and why people made this, the music that they made. It was very exciting. And over the years, it kind of, you know, went downhill and it wasn't this question-answer format. It was more like an article where the journalists would speak about themselves, most of all, and they were somehow the star. And you were just like this, you know, half a line somewhere, like dropped here and there. And, um, and that was a, a, a new, new type of journalism taking over. And um, and not just in Nezahog, I think it was kind of a general thing, and um, um, and yes, and these guys were also aging, and aren't we all? And it is difficult, but I think that when Sterilab started, they they really liked they really liked us actually, and uh, but what they really wanted to do was talk about McCarthy talk about the past because the past was somehow better than the present and the potential future 
And that annoyed me, I remember, you know, it's like, well, and, and it annoyed Tim as well, because he wasn't there to speak about McCarthy, he wanted to talk about Sterilab. And and I guess there was an element of, maybe they were starting to hype us a little bit, but we weren't ready to be hyped, because right. if you're hyped and all of a sudden you're, you're a huge star and you're not ready, then that's when bands break up or when your nervous system breaks up. Mm. And I've seen it happen, you know, I've seen it happen to people like PJ Harvey or the Cranberries or even Pulp, you know, when they were from nobodies to all of a sudden being mega stars. And it's just not good, you know, you don't want that because it's gonna give you a nervous breakdown, you know. And um, and I remember kind of going, well, you know, like, and I don't know, maybe I said something wrong. Um, did they did they see you as a French artist, or did they almost see, you know, knowing a bit about your backstory and and you know you'd, you'd spoke on a, a number of occasions about how you were somewhat disillusioned with the, the the music scene back back home. You went to London. Did they see you as somewhat of a traitor? Was this the case? Probably right. <laughs> a traitor. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm sorry. That's that's what I that's what I probably was or seemed to be, but. Yeah, I just didn't feel comfortable in France, and I, and I still don't feel comfortable in France. I love visiting. I love France. I love my friends. I love Paris, but it's funny. Each time I'm on the Eurostar and we cross the Channel and we land, like magically, we're in France, and I'm like, my first thought is, I really don't miss France, you know. So I mean, maybe I'm one of those people who was really born in the wrong country, you know, like some people are born in the wrong body or something, you know. <laughs> so, um, but I mean, nothing wrong with that, you know, like we we all travel more and more and we all end up in different places more and more. And it's, you know, like you don't live in New Zealand anymore, right? So, I mean, these things are quite common, really. But, um, I mean, Sterilab and the press, we, we didn't have an easy story even in the UK because the UK had their... But like most press, and I think that's because a lot of journalists are lazy, they just make boxes with stickers, you know, and then they just throw you into a box. And if you happen to not quite fit any box, ah, you're annoying, <laughs> you know, but, but then what they do is they create a new box for you with a term that they've decided for you. And in the case of Stereolab, it was post-rock. Oh, oh well, no, but that was tortoise. No, we were retro, retro-futurist oh, pop. I think, you, I think in, the, in, in the CD selection somewhere in the world, you also... I think that was a subset of Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I think post-rock. Okay. But retro-futurist rock, right? Pop. Oh, okay, retro-futurist pop. Or pop rock in the instance of what we've just seen. Uh, we're going to play another video right now. This is something that you particularly wanted to play as well. Um, it was taken off an album called Mars Oriette Quintet, which, um, you know, I, I, I think, I'm, I mean, I'm speaking for myself and other people in this room and lots of people watching this video. This was one of those incredible albums. It was the first album that I discovered of Stereolab and it was uh, yeah, one of these moments where for a lot of young people around the world we, we really got opened up to a wonderful world of electronic music we didn't know existed before and these instruments like Moogs and you know like it was it was, an, it was, it was yeah it was like 
Alice in Wonderland falling and falling down some kind of wormhole. Um, so we're going to listen to a track off this right now. This is uh, this is a track called Ping Pong. Um, before we watch the video, what uh, lyrically, what is this? What is this track about? Oh, sorry, it's quite heavy, <laughs> but it, it's basically about the 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 cycles, the cycle of destruction. Um, within capitalist, you know, the capitalist cycle of, you know, of that's eating its own crap and then, you know, engendering crisis and, and you know, deeper and a war, the war to repair everything, you know, to get the economy back on track, produce, 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 repair, rebuild, and then, you know, another crisis. And except that now we're at a stage where it's not a crisis anymore. Can we call this a crisis? It's not a crisis, right? Because a crisis happens, and then, and then you either die or fall off the cliff, or you change and you evolve, right? And we're just stuck. I mean, since I was born, it's been la crise, la crise, la crise économique. So now we're just stuck. So I'm tending to think now that we are in a war. This is we are at war. And there are, there are people who are out there to suck our wealth, our energy, our work, and make it as cheap as possible, you know, to reap the benefits for their own profit, you know. And we don't even know that they are venging war against us. So it's a strange kind of war, admittedly, but I think we're just in the, in the war at the moment of this cycle. So we'll watch this uh, this video now. This is uh, definitely the subject matter what a fourteen year old is, is not thinking about, um, and then going back rediscovers all this. Yeah, no, definitely. This is uh, Stereo Lab with a track called Ping Pong. So one more time, what what are the lyrics for the chorus there? Um, bigger wars, bigger slumps, and a shallower recovery, and. It's funny now I see what's the the suitcase he's he's Mr. Capitalist who's stealing our money. Yeah. That's what he is. I, you know, sometimes it takes a while to for the penny to drop. <laughs> so sometimes 21 years. Eh oui. <laughs> C'est la vie. So talk us a bit about the, the, the process of how a stereo lab track would come together at this point. So, you know, you talked about this notion of, of you know, Tim is literally in the lab. He's, he's going away. He brings this wheelbarrow full of tracks to you. And then you, you have lyrics. Uh, and then how do you go about writing for something like that? And, and how do you, I guess, on the surface, if that was an instrumental, you've got such a, a sweet, you know, soundscape, a poppy soundscape, and you're like, right, I've got some, I've got some subject matter for this one. Well, <laughs> um, yeah, as I said, you know, music was not just a mere entertainment to us. I, I don't know if it's because I was born in May 68 or what, mm -hmm. but yeah, I always felt quite, well, you know, this is, why are things the way they are? Because the, the, there's big discrepancies, you know, that, I don't know, to me it feels, it feels like, I don't know, it's just not right. Things are not right. And, and when I see something that's not right, I want to put it right, you know. And, um, and somehow I could never um, accept that people are so accepting of the status quo, which is... It's serving them to a degree, but like 
not not in fact not even that much you know so okay i'm i'm a bit older now and um and well i guess i have to accept that maybe the changes will come about in a slow fashion you know but still i felt where there i have a tool you know and and i mean music changed my life i, I went to see some bands like i walked in a a, a particular person and I would walk out a different person and I did believe you know and had experience on a very intimate level um, the power of of art at large it's not just music it can be a movie um, I don't know if you're familiar with Mississippi Records um, they they had uh, the guy who runs it has ha has inherited um, like 300 hours of filming by this 70-year-old guy who in the late 70s and 80s bought a little camcorder and he went to film an America that he felt was um, was vanishing. And, and basically he went to um, film poor people of America and um, and how they lived and just how they played their music. And so it was mostly black people, but some white people also. And um, so anyway, Mississippi Records made a presentation of of um, some of these hours and um, edited together. And and I know I saw this this presentation of this America that was vanishing. Not that poverty is vanishing, but that kind of people and ways of living. And I walked out. My my brain was wired differently. You know, so so I believe in the power of that and that and and to me what's the point in going to see an exhibition that just does nothing to you, that makes you feel nothing or makes you think nothing or very little or horrible thoughts or, you know, disgusting thoughts, you know. I wanna see something that, you know, will kind of make me react, you know, has you know, has some grit where I'm gonna walk out a different but better person somehow or more aware you know so I felt it was important uh, it just felt very natural in fact it was not like ooh scratching my head what shall I talk about no it's like well you know this system is just it's just appalling we're having to serve it when it should be serving us and you know and the governments are serving the system when they should be serving us you know so all this also election thing was you know, it just seemed like an absurdity that we all think, oh, well, it's democracy. Well, actually, no, it's not democracy. It's uh, it's everything but democracy, in fact. So, yeah, and there were notions such as autonomy, which which seemed very important to me, that we, we have to um, strive at being autonomous. That means we we give ourselves our own, our own law and... Um, you know, and if everybody does that, then we're all emp empowered of our own law and we're more inclined to relate to each other in better ways. Sorry, I'm not very explaining very well, but, you know, like just as an idea rather than someone imposing the law on everybody. No, I think, I think you are. I, I, one thing that is, you know, it must be asked. You were writing about these things 21 years ago and, and even... 20, well, nearly 30 years ago when kind of McCarthy around you, you know, you're writing about these issues and, and now more than ever before, these, these things are so out in the open. Um, 
Do you are you still as charged as you were twenty one years ago to to write about these things? Do you ever get to a point where you're like, oh, what's the point? It's just twenty one years have gone on. I've been writing about these things and nothing happens. It's only getting worse. Um, n- no, I st- I still wonder about to write about these things, but um, I think maybe twenty years ago I was going head on, and um, I mean. I think it's 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 difficult because we're faced with a human factor and and the human humans are vulnerable and they're corruptible and and they can be coward cowards and you know all sorts of things like that so it's like well you know accept that respect that and how to bring people around to to surpass to surmount their cowardice or whatever it is that you know that's keeping us down there and keeping us from taking um, taking our power into our hands, you know. Like how how do we get, you know? I mean, it's the state of thing is normal whereby you have corporations who are going to want to suck the life out of the workers. That's a normal uh, thing. But what's not normal, I think, is that people aren't going, hey, what the fuck? You know, this is my wealth. This is my power. I want it back. You know, so this is where I want to be, you know, acting here, like uh, as an artist, you know, to like think around just that point here, not go, ah, the bad ones, the bad corporations. We all know they're terrible. Mm -hmm. And as you say, that's very out in the open. But what isn't is is our relationship to that and the way we react in the face of that, in the face of this open theft that is going on right under our eyes and noses. We're going to play another track right now, which I, I I'm gonna I don't think is is that political. Uh, Cybelle's Revere. Cybelle's Reverie. Okay, yeah. I, my French is terrible. As, as reverie, um, Re- reverie, no, reverie. You, but you say that in English, a reverie. Oh, yeah, reverie. No, no. Yeah, I was yeah. about to say my my French is terrible, so I don't know what the lyrics are about because this track is actually in French. And, and there's was, no such word as entrepreneur in French. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what is this track about? It's about childhood, and and about my my swing in my childhood. But don't tell Malcolm from McCarthy, okay? <laughs> so, one more time. The name of that track was. Sibel's Reverie. Reverie. Taken off an album called uh, Emperor Tomato Ketchup. And I think, like, the one thing that I have to... Uh, I'll, you, I'm sure there'd be a lot of Stereo Lab fans that would hate me if I didn't ask. Um, quite possibly the most incredible and an imaginative album titles in the history of music. Um, from Stereo Lab. Personal Ooh, favorite um, Cobra phases in there. Cobra and phases play Voltage in the Milky Night. <laughs> Did I get it right? <laughs> um, who came up with the album titles? Tim did. Right, 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 right. My 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 album titles are like the trip. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I think okay, it's it's you know you you've with with that response there you've you've taken me kind of um, to a point that I I wanted to talk about, which is you know undeniably for so many people around the world. Um, you as the voice of Stereolab uh, were what a lot of people's, you know, this is this was Stereolab to them. Obviously, the music side of things, which was D- Tim's contribution, was a very, very large element as well. They were both equal. Yet ultimately, you know, it's your voice on, on every track, but you're not able to 
ultimately have a say in, in how your voice ends up. Is that correct? Is that what was happening at the time? Um, yeah, as I said, it it was no democracy, uh, Sterilab. So, and um, and that that's fair enough. Um, but yeah, Tim took m most of the artistic decisions in terms of writing, comp composition, arrangements, and um, yeah, and I had no say. And um, and I did want to write songs. I had songs in me certainly. And because um, it must be noted, you you. Could play. You were playing keys. Uh, when you would perform live, you were playing which instruments? Well, I I played the moog. Um, I did. I didn't. I can't really play keyboards like like that. You know, I could play notes and go. That was a lot of fun. Um, but I I wanted to write songs. In fact. Um, I discovered I wanted to write songs because I had I would dream of songs and I would. Oh, Oh, I wrote a song in my dream. It's like a wet dream, you know. And I felt I had to have my own outlet. And the only way to have my own outlet was to is to have my own band or my own sort of formation, solo project, as they call it. And uh, and indeed, that's how I formed Monade. And uh, and it took me three years to realize that I was in a band called Stereo Lab with my boyfriend, and I went off solo. And I called my myself Mono Monad, you know, three years for that. <laughs> three years, and then the, then that yes. penny dropped. <laughs> but but before we hear a track from Monad, I, I I'd like to ask you if it's okay. I mean, just how difficult is that a situation to be in when you know you? Uh, I'm, I'm sure so many of the people in this room find themselves in in you know, musically creative environments where they're collaborating with other people and they get a say and. And what's happening? Um, you're in a situation where, it's, as you say, it's not a democracy, um, but it just so happens that person that you're collaborating with is also your boyfriend. Um, how do you balance creative partner with life partner? I, I found it very difficult, and you know, it sounds it's another one of those things that sounds ideal, you know, but I I think it was far from ideal, and in fact now with my my new although we are kind of collaborating as we will see later on with another video um i i just don't want really to be in a collab collaborative project with my boyfriend because i don't know i, w I was a bit traumatized by that somehow uh, i got over it but uh it, it was difficult to be um I don't know, I felt like I was more like an object rather than, you know, an active uh, participant in this. And it wasn't a nice feeling, really. But, uh, I mean, we were young and we were insecure and, 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 you know, so, and things were the way they were. And it's fantastic. I really learned a lot. Mm. But uh, it wasn't it wasn't always fun to be in that situation where, you know, it's it's difficult to stand at the front of stage and to to sing your lyrics is difficult to write lyrics to write good lyrics you know and i was kind of thrown into that role because that's what tim didn't want to do so yeah and it's difficult to sing also to sing in front of people you know so i had to learn all that you know like this on 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 the spot you know and i'm very thankful actually that i did but it was difficult, and I felt like the the kind of hardest. And Tim was hiding away with his guitar, 
you know and it's it's like if if you have a problem if you have a cold you can still play the guitar but singing when you have a cold or yeah, yeah, yeah. or you're jet lagged you know and you just arrive and you have to play a show it, it's going to show in the voice much more so than it will show in your keyboard or your guitar and so you're more exposed as a singer and and i felt you know that i was doing like the kind of awkward role but but still i embraced it and i loved it and i learned a lot so um i can't complain really all right, we're going to listen to something from Menard right now. So, all of a sudden, you you know, you developed a solo project. Um, just how liberating was it to have a project now where it was your lyrics, but you actually, you know, determined and dictated what the music was as well. It was extremely liberating and very fun, and. Um, and I would say that the Monad projects I had did three albums were really like a playground because I had to, I had to construct my own identity, but within a school that was Tim's school of music, as I called it, and uh, and I had to find my own voice, who I was, you know, what was, and I, and I'm and I'm still looking for that, you know, and but I did have my playground and. Um, and just tried things, you know, and whatever. And, and I didn't feel the consequences were, would be, you know, if any, if there were any, it wasn't really important, you know. The important thing was to do it, so, which I did. And this is, I haven't heard this in, I think, even since it came out. But anyway, it's called Cash Cash, and it, it's one of my first tracks. With, uh, you know, with regard to what was happening with Monad, Stereo, it must be noted, Stereo Lab was still going on. But in terms of lyrically and, and, and the way you'd approach songwriting for the work you're doing with Monad, is, is there, you know, is there things that you felt that you could do with Monad that you couldn't do with Stereo Lab from a lyric perspective? No, from, from a lyrical perspective, I had complete freedom in yep. Stereo Lab. So oh, there was... You know, it was in, it was indifferent, but it's true that in, at the beginning of doing Monad, it was like I feel like my my concern was more placed on the music, mm. my attention, and the lyric was more accessory. And uh, I remember around writing, I was pregnant with my son, mm. so it's called Cash Cash because he was supposed to come out and at a, on a certain due date, and he was. It took much longer to come out. So it was like... What does cash cash mean? It means hide and seek. <laughs> um, and it was a song, you know, well, you know, don't don't be scared of coming out. Even if the world it might seem like a somber place, right. you know, do come out and play. Um, but yes, the it's very emotional to hear this because um, now I know why I don't play my records because... You know, it makes me want to cry. Like Mary is all over this. Right. She's playing the, like, the keyboard and she's saying, ooh. And I totally remember being pregnant like this and Mary playing the keyboards and me engineering. And there was this this idea of, um, because uh, Mary and I were both kind of feminists, not with the hat feminists, you know, but in the sense that, you know, we're women and we want to do it. And um, there was a real conscious um, effort behind, you know, the fact that we were doing it and we had to do it. And like as women, because we were, you know, there was this the right girl movement and 
you know, it was like, hey, girls, get up and do it, you know. So, you know, there's also all this behind it, like, yeah, we're women and we're doing it. And uh, and that was fun. And, and, you know, I can only encourage women, you know, to do it. Because, you know, it's it's right. That's when you're actually engaging in life is when you're doing things. And so anyway, that also reminds me all of this. One thing I've got to point out, the last two tracks that we heard, you were singing in French. And, you know, maybe there's absolutely no um, grand decision behind it at all. But for a lot of people in this room, you know, they uh, a lot of them, English is a second language. And, and you know, yet you can, you jump between English sometimes and, and, and the native language sometimes. For you, <clears throat> how do you know if a, if a track is going to be sung in French or English? Are there certain things you feel that you can express in French that you can't in English? Yeah, is there anything behind that? I mean, in the beginning, I was happy to sing in English because it was one that much removed from me. So it was like more impersonal. And I enjoyed that somehow as, as part of a program to, to run away from myself. And, um, and then I realized, okay, well, this running away from myself is not serving me. So... I should come back, you know, and uh, come back home. And, um, yeah, and I, I guess that's when I embraced um, singing in French also. And then it became just this kind of very mechanical thing that as soon as I got too comfortable writing in one language, I would automatically revert to the other. And I don't know why I had to make it hard on myself like that, but, you know, that was just my way. Something that you mentioned before, uh, which was, you know, the, the tragic death of, of your the, the co-vocalist Mary, which happened around about 2002, which was which was a pretty tumultuous time for the group. Um, you know, Mary had, was tragically was tragically killed in a car accident. Uh, not only that, but I believe around that time, you know, as you mentioned before, Tim was your boyfriend. You'd you'd had a baby together, um, and the, that relationship ended as well. Yet you're still in the band carrying on and putting on a brave face uh, just how difficult is it to to keep this thing that you've all created going on where internally you know it's it's things aren't the best it was very difficult it was yeah a very difficult time of separation and loss and um i mean for which one for which um, music can be a, of a real help, you know, in where you can pour your your sadness or, you know, when it came to losing Mary and we were writing Marjorie Eclipse and I ended up having to sing all her parts because she was gone. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was really, really sad, really sad time. It took me a few years really to kind of assimilate and kind of recover but I'm still extremely sad of losing Mary and it took me it's I don't know if I, I've actually completely accepted her her death like to me she's still like in the room right next door you know I'm just being conscious of time and very soon I'm going to throw it over to these guys for questions but you know it must be noted uh 2007 uh you know uh your manager uh Martin Pike who is part of Duophonic as well, the label, posted a, a, a very, well, not so cryptic message on online and said that, yes, um, 
uh, Stereolab will be going on an indefinite hiatus. So yeah, and it always it comes with the the inverted commas indefinite hiatus. But that was a, a point in your career where you know you stepped out solo. Was it hard to make that decision that okay, it's been nineteen years. There's been ups and downs, but we've got this amazing body of work. Let's let's call it a day. No, I it it wasn't hard. It was it was hard harder to be in Stereolab by this stage than to than for it to end. So, and it, and I mean it was Tim's call anyway, and I was. Uh, it felt like it was the right time to give it a a rest at least. Um, and it's still, to this day, I still don't know if we're ever going to reform or what. But um, as far as I'm concerned, um, I haven't stopped making music. And uh, and this playground has developed into something, I like to think, more formed. And though I'm still, it's still taking on a shape. And as I guess all art, you know, is, I don't think you ever arrive there. And if you do, maybe it's not such a good thing. Um, yeah, so, I mean, for, for me, uh, the end of Sterilab was actually the end of something that had become quite painful. Yeah. You know, the relationships in the band were were not so fun. And uh, I didn't like being the only woman in the band that I found really tedious, in fact. And, um, and I'm just really, really happy now... Uh, to be making my own music and in my own terms and refining that. And um, I have a great band uh, which are playing at La Gaîté tomorrow, yes. uh, opening for Nicolas Godin. And we're a trio and and it's it's great. We're, I'm very happy with, with what I'm doing now and I'm not like, oh, I hope Sterilab's going to reform. <laughs> if it does, great, because... I'm not going to lie to you and say I don't I hate Sterilab. I love the music and I will sing Tim's songs any day of my life, I think. But um like on a human level, you know, I'm very happy to be to be where I'm at today. And it must be noted for everyone in this room that uh, you know, the you and Tim have there's been a couple of occasions in the last couple of years where you've got up on one of his side projects and sung a song. There's there's, there's still a there's a there's a great friendship that's still there. Well, there's a friendship that's still. There. <laughs> well, there's something there. Yeah, yeah. Let's watch it. We'll watch a video right now. This is uh, this is video number four uh, to the technical guys. Um, so it must be noted as well. You you're now so you're now recording um, and touring. I hope it's dry fruit. We're gonna see. Yeah, it's dry fruit. We're gonna see. Because I've had enough of Sterilab now. Yeah, we're, 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 we're at video number four, which is, is dry fruit territory. So, yes, you're, you're now recording and touring and do your own name. Yes, indeed. And, yeah, we just finished an American tour with my trio. And it was nice because people came, like we had crowds every night in every town, and people came to see me and not Sterilab. Mm. So it's nice that, you know, of course, they probably st love Sterilab as well. And some of them actually would come and apologize, say, I'm sorry, I don't know Sterilab. You know, I'm like, oh, great. <laughs> How refreshing. So, um, yeah, I mean, not that there's a competition, but it's true. It's it's a double-edged sword, mm. you know, coming out of something that has such a, 
a reputation and you know a body of work as you say and establishing myself as my own my own work sure. my own thing how, how difficult you know again that's something that applies to a lot of people in this room um stepping out solo when it's and there's been times with in the last few years where it's it's literally just been you, right? It's without a backing band. Mm-hmm. And it's you packing up the guitar and getting on the plane and touring the world. I mean, yeah, how difficult was, was that? It's, it's been so formative and so fantastic. Already from the point of view of just being with myself and traveling with myself and getting to know myself has been fantastic. And, and I think very important, um, you know, to... To manage that, and also to be forced uh, when you're in a band, you're going to hang out with your mates, you know, and and there uh, be absolutely forced to be open to the world and whoever is coming to me, and and go towards people also, and it's it's been, I'm so lucky, it's been so beautiful, you know, and and also people who come to the shows or invite me, such music lovers, and um, I mean. Practically all these people are my friends today, you know, so so it's like meeting peers, you know, so it's been really, really excellent. So we're going to watch a video. This is Dry Fruit. I think one of the final questions from me, Leticia, before we hand things over is, is what keeps you constantly motivated to to get up, I don't know if it's every day, or but, but every few days and, and constantly in the in the garden of information out there, constantly find little little corners to tend to and get new things um, and turn those things, those sources of inspiration into lyrics for songs? Well, there there is so much out there, really, and I feel life is too short even to begin scratching the surface. Well, hopefully life's not over, but, um, yeah, there's... Yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot to tend to. Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together for Leticia Sadia. Hey, this is Todd Burns again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Uh, before you go, I just wanted to take a moment to tell you about the Academy. The Red Bull Music Academy is a world traveling series of music workshops and festivals. Almost every year since 1998, we've done the main Academy event in one city. The lecture you just heard, for instance, was from the Academy in Paris. But we do events uh, around the world throughout the year. And among other things, we've got an online radio station and an online magazine. In short, it's a lot of stuff, uh, but it's all pretty cool, in my opinion, anyway. Uh, If you want to find out more for yourself, you can check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com.